Thank you, Dr. Hawking. Thank you to this wonderful team. Well, uh, most all of you know Dr. Hawking, and uh, he, he didn't need as much of an introduction. Many of you may not know Dr. David Seifert, and I wanted to introduce you to him. Dr. David Seifert is a longtime friend of uh, Dr. Hawking. In fact, they've known each other some 45 years. Uh, they went to uh, the same school when Dr. Seifert was in college and, and uh, Dr. Hawking was in seminary. They also worked together for se- some seven years at uh, First Brethren in Long Beach. And on the back of your programs here, I hope you all got one of these. If not, there are a number left in the back, I know. Dr. Seifert serves as the senior pastor of Shelter Cove Community Church in Modesto, California. He's a up in Northern California. I like that. That's where I grew up. For over 20 years, uh, his ministry, Growing Through God's Word, has been proclaiming the Word of God to a lost and dying world. He co-authored the book, The Complete Book of Church Growth, with Dr. Elmer Towns, and we've also listed his website there. Would you please give a warm welcome to Dr. David Seifert? Well, it's great to be with you all uh, tonight and to see some of our dear friends uh, that lady there on the piano and this man right here on the organ and his wife, Andrea. They were at our wedding, which this man did 25 years ago. My, Ruth and my wife in the back. Ruth, would you just stand up and wave a little bit? 25 years, just, uh, just this last week. So uh, we're blessed. We have 13 grandchildren. So uh, you can imagine what happens around our house at Christmas time. Well, this is, uh, this is a great book. We're touring the last book of the Bible. Some 404 verses and 22 chapters. And uh, I'll tell you, it is unbelievable how much of the Old Testament is woven into Revelation. And uh, we want to talk about that. You know, Revelation is really kind of like a huge central uh, train station where all the trains of thoughts from all of the Bible are coming right into the center. And that's what this book is. In fact, I encourage you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Final words to the church. You've just been introduced to the one who was speaking in chapter 1. And what an awesome picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's the one that wants to speak to you and to me today in in these incredible words that He has in chapter 2 and 3, if I don't mess everything up. You know, as we talk about the sevens, seven churches... The sevens of finality and fullness. you got seven letters, seven churches, seven angels, seven stars, seven spirits, seven descriptions of the Lord Jesus. You know, numbers really carry significance in the book of Revelation, especially this number seven. Speaks of fullness and perfection and completion. And here Jesus speaks of full complete message to the churches, I believe, of all the ages, giving us a full picture of the New Testament church in all of history. Chapters 2 and chapter 3, probably the most important part of the book, honestly, for us, where we live today, now. 
because these chapters impart the vision that Jesus has for our lives. And instead of our vision for Him, they share His vision for us. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts as we open the Word of God, as we examine these letters. You know, most of us are interested in what Revelation has to say about the future, but first of all, God wants to speak to us about our relationship with Him. And that's what this section of Revelation is all about. You've got seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We ask, why these seven? Well, chosen, no doubt, because of their spiritual condition. They represent the churches throughout the world of all time. Seven, a perfect number. All the churches, seven messages of direction, seven messages of exhortation. These are his final words to the church. That means to each one of us, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're a part of the church that bears his name. Twenty times the Greek word for church appears in Revelation in the first three chapters. The church is mentioned 19 times where he gives clear direction, admonition. But suddenly, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, John shifts from in-depth messages to the church to total silence regarding the church. Kind of amazing. And I want you to think about that as we get into this. You'll see church, 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 church. When we get to chapter 4 tomorrow morning, no mention. The church is gone. In fact, it doesn't appear again until Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Just look at it in your Bible. Where there the church is pictured as a bride beautifully, adorned returning to earth with her bridegroom husband. Now, if the church returns with Jesus in Revelation 19 at the end of the tribulation time, then where is she returning from? And how did she get there? Well, Jesus said this in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. And on and on he began to promise us that he would come back. Compelling evidence. I believe that the church will not be on earth when God pours out his fearful wrath. These two chapters are for us today. Seven angels, chapter 1, verse 20. Seven messengers, seven descriptions of who Jesus is. A marvelous description. Uh, you ever get an audit lesson, uh, letter from the IRS? You ever get one of those things? You open that thing with fear and trepidation. I mean, that when you get an audit letter from the IRS, it has your full attention. I've been down that road. It's been years. But I've had an audit. Anybody else... Let me see your hand. You've had an audit. Okay, a few of you. The rest of you haven't had that privilege yet. May you never have it. Well, if you think that causes you to straighten up, 
What would it be like if you were the pastor of the church of Ephesus and you got a letter from Jesus? I mean, you know what? You're doing good here and here and here, but I've got a bone to pick with you. There's something wrong, and we've got to get it straightened out. Well, this is from Jesus to believers. This is what Jesus sees that is needed in your life and in mine. And in light of his any moment return, this is how we should live. Let's look at the first church. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And the first thing that we notice is the church has departed from its main priority. You know, God never meant that our duty for Him would replace our love for Him. But honestly, that happens quite often. He never meant that our busyness would take the place of sitting at His feet in devotion. And when worship touches our heart, it moves our hands to serve others in love. Seven times in the Greek, Jesus emphasizes His knowledge about each one of us. He says, I know. There it is in verse 2. Look, I know. He knows what's going on in my church. He knows what's going on in your church, doesn't He? He knows. You know, what is Bible prophecy? Well, history written in advance simply because God knows. And when he says that, oida, I know in the Greek, God knows about our personal devotion. He knows about our worship of him. How, how well are you doing with the single most, the greatest commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And here this church had left its main priority. They were diligent, they were doctrinally sound, they certainly were determined. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken, you've left your first love. I notice he didn't say you've lost your first love. No, you left it. We're talking about neglect here, aren't we? It means to let go of something. It means to walk away from something. It means to move. It's possible for any one of us to be distracted from our initial devotion to the Lord. And yet the Bible tells us that a love relationship with God is, is more important than any other single factor in my life. It is a main priority. Amen? And that love relationship with God becomes the source 
It becomes the well out of which everything else comes. My care, my concern for others, my ministry, my life, my testimony. And so as we look at this church, I guess that's the question. The question that we have is, do I love God above all else? And may He show us, may He speak to us, why do I do what I do? Why do I, what's the motive behind my methods? Why do I serve? Why do I sing? Why do I share? Because if the motive is not love for God, something is seriously wrong, and that's exactly what was happening at the church of Ephesus. We've all been there, haven't we? I have. We all have felt the subtle, destructive symptoms of the loss of a first love. You know, the same process destroys millions of marriages. Things don't fall apart overnight, do they? Neglect or nurture? What am I doing with my relationship with God? And when a church like Ephesus slips to this point, the light just suddenly dims. And the influence for the gospel begins to die. Still working? Oh, yeah. Still orthodox? Sure. Little impact. The Holy Spirit says clearly, the only remedy, if this is us, is to repent. Vance Abner says the church has no greater need today than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Amen? Wow. Isn't that our great need? We come to Revelation chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, Jesus repeats this over and over again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The church will face persecution. As we come and look at this issue of Smyrna, it means bitter. It's interesting. It's related to the fragrance of myrrh. The words are related and uh, interesting how that fragrance of myrrh is produced by the crushing of the spice. And there are times in our lives when we are called to suffer. In fact, I have a series back there, uh, uh, What's So Good About Hard Times? And uh, from the lesson from the life of Joseph, a man who was crushed. And yet out of that grew some of the most amazing characteristics that we see in his life. And it's true in all of us. We grow best in winter. But this was suffering. Some don't know what suffering is. But there are times in all of our lives when we are called to suffer. Uh, David was speaking about the martyrs. A lot of people think, well, the martyrs are gone. But honestly, what the statistics tell us is since 70 A.D., there's been about 70 million at least Christians which have been martyred since these days. 
There's well over 150,000 martyred every year in our world today. And so this is a church that knew what suffering was all about. When you suffer because you're living right, when you suffer because you're glorifying God, let me tell you, friend, it registers in heaven. God knows. The Bible says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus told us the truth, didn't he? He said, in this world you're going to have trouble, but in me you may have peace. Trouble is like standard equipment on a car. It just comes with it. It comes with life. But peace is optional equipment. I don't know about you, but I need the optional equipment of peace. Amen? We can have it. We really can. There's no warning given to this particular church. None at all. It was a church that was purified by the rigors of persecution. You know, only a dedicated Christian would be willing to die. A hypocrite would uh, quit the church long before he would ever risk losing his life. True believers, faithful unto death, Jesus said will receive a crown, one of the five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. Revelation 19 tells us what they're going to do with those crowns, but They'll receive a crown of life. The very best evidence that Christianity is true many times is the way believers will suffer. The question is personal. Am I courageous in the face of persecution? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why do you take up your cross? Because Jesus told us what it would cost us to follow him. And so rather than bow down and worship Caesar, there were people in this church that laid down their lives. Look with me at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. What Jesus is doing is identifying with these believers. He said it will, he will always identify with us. He's already conquered the worst that we have to fear. He triumphed over pain. He triumphed over the cross, the devil, sin and death. Death could not hold him, and friend, it cannot hold his people. In fact, if you look at verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be heard by the second death. What's the second death? Well, we know about spiritual death. Ephesians tells us we're dead in our sins and trespasses before we come to know Christ. We know about physical death, don't we? But spiritual death, that's when a person dies and does not know Christ and faces that final judgment and then is cast into that eternity without Christ in a place called hell. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. You know, every time Christians were martyred, there were unbelievers that would watch. They would wonder. And they couldn't understand the strange behavior of these Christians. And when pagans came to the place of execution, they came cringing, they came begging, they came pleading. But honestly, when the Christians came, the vast majority, they came singing. The stories are unbelievable. They came with joy on their face and declaration and proclamation of truth. They came as victors, not victims. And it was because they had a power that unbelievers wanted. And in fact, the more that they were crushed, 
the more fragrance of Christ would come from their lives and the more people would accept Jesus Christ. God uses suffering to move forward his great ministry. We come to church number three. Come with me to chapter two. Look at verse 14. I have a few things here to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him. Who receives it? What a blessed passage that in. Pergamum. This is a church. The very word means marriage. Marriage. It was a marriage of compromise. That's what happened. This church has compromised its purity. You know, compromise is always a temptation for followers of Jesus in every age. We see a lot of it today. Uh, this is the hot button of tolerance that this church really unfolds. God says if his people will take a stand on his word and refuse to compromise, that he will remember, he will reward us. You ever notice, church, that when God speaks, he's really not into suggestions? You notice that? He's into commands. And obedience is really not an option for us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commands, you will obey me, and that's why we're to pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting right here in my church, in my life. And when you pray that way, first of all, you're praying, God, I want to be obedient. I want to only do your will. Let me tell you a quick story. I had no desire um, last year, the first of this year, to go on a mission trip to Southeast Asia, none at all. And uh, I got this invitation from uh, someone that uh, I was a Bible teacher for back. Uh, I served with David Hawking back in the early 70s in Long Beach and uh, taught Bible at uh, Brethren High there. And uh, one of those in my class was the son of a missionary family. And he uh, wrote me a letter on Facebook and he said, David, he said, I remember your Bible teaching. I'd like you to come to the Philippines and uh, teach the Bible over here to pastors. Well, I, I really had absolutely zero desire to go to the Philippines, I'll be honest, okay? I mean, I was just covering all the bases where I was and didn't really need that in my life, so I thought, but I said, Dan, I'll seriously pray about it. And I meant that. And uh, we were down in the desert, uh, forget which day it was, it was about in March, and... I was up early and I was working my way through the Lord's Prayer. You ever do that? It's great. And I was down at this line, your will be done. 
Lord, I, I want to do whatever you want to do. I want to obey you in my life. And suddenly this Philippine trip came to my mind. And I thought, well, Lord, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. If you really want me to go to the Philippines, the answer is yes. Uh, Lord, can you just show me? You know? Could you, could you somehow show me that this is what you want? I mean, you know, I got this invitation, but should I go? Finished my prayer, uh, headed out to Starbucks for a little morning libation, and uh, went into Starbucks and got my coffee, and uh, as I often do, I always like to check who's around. I noticed over there near the window on the way out the door, there was this man sitting, kind of holding his head like this, kind of looking at a book that kind of looked familiar to me. And so I walked over, observed him for a moment. I said, hey, I said, that's a pretty good book you're reading. He said, yeah, it is. And we struck up a conversation. It wasn't long before I was sitting down there uh, just talking with him a little bit. And I said, oh, by the way, uh, what do you do? He said, I'm a missionary. I said, where? <laughs> you want to tell me what he said? <laughs> How do you know that? He said, oh, I'm a missionary to the Philippines. I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I told him about Dan and Tori Beaver and uh, First Love Ministries and what they were doing on the island of Barakai and, and so forth and working with the pastors and building this ministry center to reach the people for Christ and all of that. And, and he said, yeah, he said, I've heard about him. I've heard about that ministry. And he looked right up at me like this. And he said, David, you should go. Now, you tell me what I said to the Lord when I walked outside Starbucks. I said, okay, Lord, we're gone. Just like that. Never looked back. It was a done deal. Went over and uh, uh, taught under Asian Theological Seminary the Book of Romans to some 80 pastors that came in from four islands uh, three days. It was just phenomenal. It was just a great, a fabulous trip. You know, when he tells us to do something, it's to help us. It's not to hurt us. Oh, that we could believe this. His commands are not burdensome, the Bible says. I want you to notice verse 13 here. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you still hold fast to my name. It was about 130 years ago that the German archaeologist by the name of Alexander Kunze worked in the city of Pergamum, and he removed that throne. And he took it out of Pergamum, true story. And he took it to Europe. And I remember reading about Satan's throne being in this museum in East Berlin. And uh, in fact, for a hundred years, Satan's throne has been in East Berlin. You tell me what happened in Europe within the last 100 years that was headquartered in East Berlin. Does it have any connection to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis? Well, I'll leave you to judge. But East Berlin is where Hitler's headquarters were located. And I'll never forget it was in 1990 when Ruth and I went on our first mission trip. We went to Berlin, stopped and saw some missionaries. And the wall had just come down. The Brandenburg Gate, uh, President Reagan had stood there not 
many months earlier and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And of course, the wall came down. And we rode a train right into East Berlin. And I couldn't wait. Went into that Pergamum Museum. And all the way through, pieces of the whole city of Babylon were there. As well as all these riches from around the world. But there was Satan's throne. Walked into the room with this thing. Man, enough to curl the hair on your back of your neck. And I was glad to get out of there. Took a few pictures. But the very throne of Satan, the Bible says, was in this particular city. Isn't that amazing? You know, the real question is no matter who's against you, will I obey God's word and do his will? The church at Pergamum began to lose its pure character. It was becoming thoroughly married to the world. They say today that there's hardly any difference between a Christian and a secular person today. They say the stats for marriage and divorce and everything else are about the same in the church as out of the church. Have we become thoroughly married to the world? They had allowed false doctrine to come into their church under the banner of, of tolerance. In our church, we've just taken a stand we have petitions out for people to sign on SB 48. Now, I don't know if it's going to make any difference or not. I know what we said on S, uh, Proposition 8. But you know, as I looked at that, I realized that God has called us to be salt and he's called us to be light. And he doesn't promise us what the result is going to be. He's just called us to be that and we are to be that. We're to stem corruption and we're to shed light on what truth is. And we are not to buy into tolerance and tolerance and tolerance. But this church did, and maybe your church is, and maybe you are. God's Word does not condone sin. It condemns it. Are we tolerating some sin or unbiblical practice in our lives? Let's get personable. If you love me, Jesus said, you obey my commands. Come with me to verse 18, and let's pick up another church. The message to uh, Thyatira, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works but to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end to him, I will give power over the nations. She shall rule them with a rod of iron, 
as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the church that tolerates moral pollution. This is the church of Thyatira. It's interesting, it's the longest of the seven letters to the smallest city. Thyatira says, in verse 20, Jesus says, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. For a woman to be called Jezebel? (laughs) You know what? That's certainly as bad as a man being called Judas. I mean, think about it. Uh, Two names you really don't want to give your children. If you're into giving biblical names, I'm for that. I'm for giving your children biblical names. Some of our grandkids have some of the wildest names that you can imagine today. But I kind of like the biblical names. But I was just thinking about it. I think you ought to skip these two, Jezebel and Judas, don't you? Just kind of skip those. I can imagine dedicating a little baby And Lord, we bring this little Jezebel to you. No, 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 no. God, I uh, bought this Judas guy. You know, I mean, how are you going to do that? Well, this influential woman, that Jezebel, she claimed to be empowered by God. Listen carefully. She calls herself a prophetess. Obviously, she wasn't. She was flaunting her immorality with no sign of repentance. In fact, look at verse 20. uh, To teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. In Ephesus, believers were weak in their love. They were strong in their discipline of false teachers, though. But here in Thyatira, they were growing in their love, but they were weak in tolerating false doctrine. This woman's teaching was contrary to the Word of God. And yet they tolerated her presence rather than deal with her. Maybe the question we ought to ask is simply this, a personal question. Am I allowing impurity in my life? Think about the challenge of purity in this world. So difficult. How does it happen? You know, at the beginning of each growth season, just in my backyard up in Modesto, I have to deal with weeds. We have a few fruit trees in our backyard. I've got a Fuji apple and I've got a Granny Smith and Got a nectarine tree out there and got a cherry tree out there. And I find that every single season, especially with the apple tree. Now, I don't know why the apples are such a pain. Somebody said it's because that's what Adam ate. Could be. But every season, you've got to go out there and you've got to spray some stuff on them. You've got to prune them like mad. You've got to watch over them. You've got to spray all summer and you've got to... What are you doing? You're watching for impurity coming into those trees and rotting that fruit. Every single season. I missed the spray on the nectarine tree this year. I tell you, the fruit was terrible. I won't do that again. You've got to deal with weeds. Constantly. Ladies, you have a thing called spring cleaning. I think we've kind of forgotten a lot about that. But, you know, in our lives, uh, Max Lucato says this, Suppose I ask you to take care of my house while I'm out of town. And you pledge to keep everything in great shape. But when I return, I find the place in shambles. 
The carpet's torn, the walls are smeared, the furniture is broken. Your explanation, not impressive. Some bikers came by and needed a place to stay. And then the rugby team called looking for a place for their party. And of course, there was the fraternity. They wanted a place to hold their initiation ceremony. As the owner, I have one question. Don't you know how to say no? This is not your house. You don't have the right to let in everyone who wants to enter. You ever think God wants to say the same to us, my friend? I think He does, don't you? I think He wants to talk to each one of us about who this house really belongs to. Whatever it takes, we're to guard the doorway to our hearts. That's what a church does. A small discipleship accountability growth group really can help each other. Let's come to that fifth church. We're in chapter 3, just beginning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's a church that has simply lost its power. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation. You have a reputation of being alive. You have a name, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You know, there wasn't anything commendable to say about this church. Jesus commends all the other churches, not this one. This is a church that enjoyed living in the past. Do you know anybody like that? They can tell you all about yesterday and what they did and what they used to do and what they used to be. But seeking, I think, to shock this church to repent and turn around, Jesus refers to his any moment return. He said, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come. It won't be a happy surprise. You know, I think about my life. Am I zealous to be used by God? We have the power of God available to us as born-again believers and dwelt by His Spirit. This church had lost touch with the power of God, having a form of godliness, denying its power. Many, many churches like this. Have you lost your spiritual condition? Wake up and strengthen what remains, Jesus says. This church had grown comfortable. They were content the Lord says, hey, I've not found your deeds complete. You're not done yet. I've got more for you to do. My friend, you're not finished yet either. You're still here, still breathing God's air. Amen? Amen. God has something for us to do. Seven spirits. Man, I'll tell you, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need His presence. And the Lord makes wonderful promises to those who are wholehearted 
in serving while looking for his coming. Look with me. Here's a great promise. There are so many things in each one of these. But in verse 5, he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, a lot of people read that, a lot of believers, and they get a little nervous. But notice what it says. I will not blot out his name. Is that good? It sure is. Amen. I will not. Warren Worsby said our names are not written in the book of life in pencil, my friend. No, they're not. You know, we come to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and we come to the church of Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, this is a church that simply doesn't see its potential. A church is called to be missional. The church is called to storm the gates of hell, to keep moving forward with the gospel. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Jesus tells this church who he is and what he does because he's the key to any opportunity that he gives us. He's the one. Do you know him? When you have a personal relationship with anyone, that relationship always brings you certain opportunities. A missionary just encouraged me to get this book. It's called The Power of Who. That you know everybody you need to know to get done what God wants you to do. And I believe that's true, especially when we rely on Him. The moment we place our trust in Christ, God the Holy Spirit enters our life. He's holy. He's truth. So important. Only when you come to know Christ do we have the real opportunity to be changed, to experience holiness and truth. And that relationship is to lead to a reliance on His power to open and shut doors of ministry opportunity. The key of David is the Messiah Himself. It is in knowing Him. My friend, it is in walking with Him. It is in submitting to Him. He's the one that opens the door to heaven. He's the one that closes the gate of hell. He alone is the one. He has the key to open the hearts of people. He's got that key. I know your deeds, he says. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And he says, I know that you have little strength. 
And that's a good thing to admit that we have little strength. Feeling inadequate and weak and underpowered can be a great asset to us because it forces us, doesn't it, to rely on the strength that God alone can give us. God opens hearts. Am I praying and looking for open doors? A very personal question. If my Savior, my Messiah, is the one who opens doors and shuts them, and He has work that He wants me yet to do, then am I, you know, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. He's the one that does that. Jesus is not limited in His ability to open doors for you to go through. I mean, think about it. If He opened the door of a sealed tomb, do you think anything can keep Him out? Do we have to compromise in order to gain an opportunity today? What door is God opening in your life to share with others? We need to make the most of each and every one. You know, there's a great promise here that I want to just touch on, and that's in verse 10. He says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He says in verse 10, because you have kept my command. And the idea is to keep out of the hour that is going to come on the whole world. What do you think he's talking about there, folks? A time of trial upon the whole world. But he says to this church, I'm going to keep you out of it. He's talking about the rapture. Believers who are alive, that at that time when Christ comes, are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Let me tell you a story. It was some years ago that an old country couple, they visited the city, the big city, to see their boy. And uh, so he decided to take mom and dad, this country elderly couple, shopping at a large department store. And his mom soon wandered off to look at some of the clothes. And father and son were standing over there talking near the elevator and something the old man had never seen before in his life. The old man watched, the double doors opened, an elderly woman walked in, the doors closed behind her. A few minutes later, the door reopened, and this vivacious, beautiful young woman stepped out. The old man got really excited and said to his boy, he said, you wait right here, I'm going to go get your mother, we're going to run her through this thing right here. You know why I like that story? <laughs> Because that's exactly what's going to happen to rapture, folks. You're going to be caught up in the rapture. The Bible says we're going to be transformed. And I'll tell you, we are going to look the best we've ever looked in our lives. Amen? Amen. Verse 11, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, suddenly. When it happens, it's going to happen. The Bible says in a twinkling of an eye. We'll say more about that later. But now, come with me to the last church. Verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Don't you love these names of the Lord Jesus? I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and are neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, and have become wealthy and of need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. By the way, that was one of the products they made it at Laodicea, and he, and he takes a twist on it. You need to anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the Bible begins where the Lord is walking in the midst of his churches. And isn't it interesting in this one, the church of Laodicea, Jesus is standing outside. And he's knocking on the door to see if someone will let him in. There are many churches like this today. You know it, and I know it. Now, Laodicea, a church that is obsessed with material possessions. It really is. There are two springs near Laodicea. The hot mineral springs, there's this Lycus Valley where Colossae was there, Hierapolis was there. There's a number of churches not too far from each other. The hot mineral springs at Hierapolis and the pure cold water springs from Colossae. And the hot springs were seen as possessing healing power and, of course, the cold springs would refine, uh, provide refreshment. But by the time the waters would flow and reach Laodicea through an aqueduct from the hot spring six miles away, guess what temperature they were? Lukewarm. Besides that, they had the most awful sulfur taste that you can imagine. And when you tasted it, you wanted to do one thing. Get it out of your mouth as quickly as you could. These so-called Christians were a little too cold to be hot. And they were a little too hot to be cold. But they were lukewarm, and that means they weren't any good to anyone. They were useless to the Lord, useless to his purposes that he had for his church. And that's why in verse 16 he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This church had lost its testimony, apathetic, indifferent. They just really didn't care that much. You know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, we're warned, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It refers to a zest, a spiritual vibrancy, a passion for the things of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is telling us. And as I think and about this in a personal way, I ask myself the question, am I living and working for worldly things? Is this really what my life is all about? How does a believer lose his or her spiritual passion? How does that happen? Well, I'm afraid that there are hundreds of churches just like this. In fact, if you look closely, you'd think he'd be describing the typical American church. I was talking with a man who was businessman philosophizing about life and its vanity, and an old song popped into his head. <laughs> and he started kind of quoting the lyrics to me. It was Peggy Lee's song, Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. That was her song. Well, if that's all there is, we might as well. 
Are we sliding toward indifference? Are you lukewarm about the Scriptures? Remember his message to Ephesus, do the deeds that you did at the beginning. Do you remember when you were first saved? How you couldn't get enough of God's Word? And how you established maybe early morning devotions and you wouldn't miss a church meeting? I mean, you went to one Bible study and another. Are you indifferent today about your worship and about your prayer time and about sharing Christ and witnessing and serving and giving? Are you, are you careless? The Bible says repent. Look with me at verse 19 once again. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. Jesus challenges the church to get on fire again. To become zealous. To do a 180 in their life. Interesting. Seven churches. Or rather, in five churches, Jesus said, repent seven times. Seven times he challenges us to repent. How much do we hear about repentance these days? I wonder, to which of these churches do you belong? Which of these churches puts its finger on perhaps an issue between you and the Lord? Seven times we read this statement, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times. So I guess the question is this. Am I going to listen to His Spirit? When I was about seven years old, my mother took me to a, an ear doctor. And she said, my son is having trouble hearing. And the doctor took me in this room and ran me through all these tests. And he came out, <laughs> grimace, smile on his face. And he said, Mrs. Seifert, he said, there is absolutely nothing wrong with your son's ability to hear. He's just dialing you out. Now what about you? Four times in Revelation, I'm coming soon. Eminent. Wouldn't it be great if he'd come before this conference is over? Wow. Four questions to leave you with. Do I need to repent? Why don't you ask the Spirit this? Just ask him. Holy Spirit, do I, do I need to repent in my life? Is there something in my life not pleasing to you? He has a way of speaking very personally to us. Do I need to remember what it was like at first? Do I remember what the price that Christ paid for me? Do I need to resolve? Do I need to once again determine that I'm not going to just sit back in a rocking chair for the rest of my days and do nothing for Jesus Christ. That I'm available and I want to serve Him. Do I need to resolve? Do, do I need His reassurance? You know, I'm just amazed as I read those, and, and it's so quickly, there, there are ten promises. Each promise, a reassurance. To him who overcomes, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 7. I will give you the crown of life not to be hurt, 
by the second death. I will give you hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. The stone of, of acquittal. The stone that allowed you into various things. I will give you power over the nations and I will give you the morning star. Uh, walk with me dressed in white and I will never blot out your name from the book of life. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of New Jerusalem, my new name. I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Promises. Fabulous promises. Let's bow. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we allow the words of the Lord Jesus that we've seen in His majesty just a few verses early rumble through our lives and our minds. There's only one satisfactory response and that is truly to hear you, to repent, to turn from our sin. Once again, Lord, fall on our face before you and begin to worship you. God, I pray that you would once again stoke the fires of our love for you. That you would give us that boldness that only the Holy Spirit can give. God, you've not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. God, I pray that you would stir us up, Lord. I pray for the churches of our land, for this particular church, for the church I pastor, for all the churches in California. But I pray specifically for these people. Lord, I pray that each one will know you, Lord, soon. They will stand before you face to face. Father, thank you for all you've done for us. We want to leave here listening to your Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you minister to us in a personal way through your word? Would you put your finger on those areas in our lives that you're calling us to change? And we'll be careful to give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Give a hand to Dr. Seifert for his message. Thank you. All right. Well, hey, just a few minutes for questions. Any questions uh, to the audience? Come on forward and uh, come to the microphone if you would, just so we can get it on the tape here. Come on up. We'll take about two or three questions, and then we'll be respectful of your time and dismiss for the night. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Hey, um, in my Bible study, we've just started Revelation, and we went through chapter 2 last week, and we kind of had a discussion about who the angels were in each of the chapters where he's writing to mm-hmm. the angel of the churches. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, scholars are divided on that. I might just say they're divided on a lot of things, but uh, the word for angel is basically the word messenger. And uh, we know that. So, here's the question. The major messenger of the church is normally the what? The pastor. The pastor. Or, is there an angel that is guarding that particular church? Uh, Those are the basic two views that are held on that issue. And, uh, you know, uh, to the one who is in charge, 
of that church, to the one who's responsible for the ministry, the messenger of that church, he's writing. So I guess, uh, I guess Neil and I have to take that personally, and that would probably be the best application for us, wouldn't it? That was my thought, is if John's actually writing a letter, then it doesn't seem to me that he'd be writing to a, an angel in heaven. He would be writing to somebody that's in charge of the church. Thank you. Thank you. Good comment. Anybody else? I like it. He's got his Bible open. Hey. Every once in a while. Um, in Revelations 2, uh, let's see, in verse, uh, in verse 23, he's speaking about Jezebel's children. He says, I will kill her children with death. Why does he mention kill her children with death? Well, whenever you get a question like that, what you always want to do is look at the context, right? So you back up and you look at the context. And who is this woman? Well, she's a self-proclaimed prophetess who very possibly has become the ultimate authority in that church, which a woman is not to be. But I just share that with you. If that's a possibility here, is she the teacher that is lording it over? Obviously, she has great authority and uh, she is, uh, um, let me find it here, she is teaching and beguiling, uh, Jesus says, my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols, so she's leading them into idolatry as well. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. I will cast her into a sick bed. Here's judgment. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts. You know, uh, first of all, we need to understand when we're talking about God, uh, the psalmist says that he does whatever pleases him. Is that okay with you? Okay, that's... That's an important issue. Because when you go back and you remind yourself of that issue, then it takes away a lot of other problems. Here's another question that, uh, that God asked Abraham. Abraham, you, you're going to destroy these cities? When, whenever I go to Israel, and we have another trip planned, I always like to go up to Masada, and we had four of our grandsons with us. And they're all, and uh, right around, they were all 20, 21, 17, I think. 16 might have been the youngest, but we had our four oldest grandsons on that trip. It was fabulous. And uh, I stood them right at the edge of Masada. And I said, boys, as they were looking east, I said, what do you see? Well, we see the Dead Sea, Grandpa. I said, describe, what else do you see? Nothing. And we talked about that for a while. And we talked about the judgment of God. That was the cities of the plain, right over there, these five cities. And I'll say more about that a little later. But they didn't see anything. There's nothing there except disaster and destruction, burned with fire. Well, in that whole thing uh, with Abraham and, and God, one of the greatest verses is Genesis 18.25. It's a rhetorical question. God asked Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So what's the answer to the question? Yes. 
the judge of all the earth will do what is right. I'll tell you, there are many times in the Bible when God judges not only the leader, but all of his children. In fact, the whole nation, all of them, judged. And uh, so I don't know specifically why he said, I will kill her children unless they were conceived in immorality that she was teaching as a possibility. But I know that the judgment of God is real. And uh, it's coming, isn't it? It is coming. Thank God for a Savior. We want to talk about all those things tomorrow morning. Where'd the church go? What happens in heaven? And on through the book of Revelation, we're going to get through all 22 chapters. And granted, we're giving you a top-line view, but I like these questions. And maybe you've got some questions afterwards that we can deal with as well. Pastor? Pastor?